If you would, please take your Bibles and uh, turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 907. So being, after being in Isaiah for a while, got to adjust to a new section. Acts chapter 1. So I'm going to start a series today going from Acts 1-1 to chapter 5-15, give or take. And we're not going to cover all that today, but uh, over the course of a few weeks. Um, I wanted a New Testament series. I wanted a short series so that we can be exposed to more sections of Scripture over the long haul. The next series might be a short one too. With that, Acts 1, we'll read the first chapter. Hear now God's holy and errant and inspired word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, 
Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Ascends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Let's pray. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. How to run the church. Those words appear on a certain book cover, but some of those words are crossed out and others are sort of scribbled in to reveal the true title of the book, How Jesus Runs the Church. That title is a primer on Presbyterian church government. It's really fascinating. It's actually a very good book by one of my old professors. And it emphasizes one of the themes of the Acts of the Apostles. Because you see, Dr. Luke's sequel is not really about the apostles. They're not the main characters anyway. In the intro, Luke writes about how the first volume, the gospel according to Luke, it, quote, dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, by implication, Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, is about all that Jesus continued to do and teach through his apostles, through his Holy Spirit, through many Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses to the gospel. The good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and continued rule and reign. But the apostles and the main characters, literarily speaking, they are the windows, the mirrors through whom we see Jesus and his Holy Spirit guide the first century church, a church that was young, poor, inexperienced, without many human advantages. Their technology, their website, their podcast, their live stream were all horrible. They didn't have much. They were weak, but in their weakness, God's power was made perfect. And that leads us to the first of our four points this morning, apostolic empowerment, apostolic empowerment. You see that in verses one through 11. Where did the apostles get their power? This passage says it clearly over and over again. Verse one, Luke or volume one, that was about what Jesus began to do and teach. And so therefore, this is about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach, right? Verse 2, it mentions Jesus' commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Jesus is still calling the shots here, right? Because he is, as verse 3 says, a risen king who spent 40 days talking about the kingdom of God. Very meaningful phrase in the Bible. One author calls this the kingdom of God the realm where God rules, or the sphere of salvation. You might say the kingdom of God and the church, they're not identical, but there is a whole lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. In verse 4, it alludes again to the source of their power, the promise of the Father that they're supposed to wait for. Well, what is that? Verse 5 gives you a bit more. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which will happen, quote, not many days from now. That's Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And then he comes back to this idea again in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
again and again, we see that the apostles, they were empowered by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. The apostolic empowerment, it was a divine empowerment. They didn't summon their courage. They didn't find inner strength. They didn't grit their teeth. They received divine power. Now, We'll cover verses 3 through 8 again in a minute. But what I want you to see so far is the centrality of Jesus in this story. The indispensable power of the Spirit. Because none of this happens without that. Not chapter 1, not the 27 chapters that follow. Nothing happens without this power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead as you See it mentioned in verse 3. You can also see those same themes in 2 Corinthians 1 and 4. The power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in us. The apostles, they were God's messengers, his sent ones. They were sent to bear witness, to testify about this message, that the kingdom of God had come, that Christ had died for our sins, that he's risen again, that death could not hold him, and it can't hold us either, not if we have faith in Christ. If we believe in Christ, then the kingdom of God has come to rule in our hearts, freeing us from sin and guilt, freeing us to live as his chosen messengers. You see, the beauty of apostolic empowerment is that it is extraordinary power for ordinary people like you and me. You see, the church's task and mission is great, especially in this day and age where Christianity is more and more disregarded insulted, disrespected, etc. The task is great. We don't deny that. But the power within us is also great. The same power that empowered the apostles, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We need to remember, brothers and sisters, the world needs the hope that we have. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to just say thank you immediately when we share it with them. So buck up, get ready. But they do need it all the same. They want freedom from sin and guilt and shame more than they realize. And we need to trust that God will give us the power through the Spirit to witness where we live and work and play. James Montgomery Boyce said, Jesus taught that when we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, the result will not be miracles, signs, or healings, but witnessing. The one sure evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit in people's lives is that they testify to Jesus. That was true for the apostles. It's true for all of us. That's what we learn when we ponder apostolic empowerment. And next we see this. Secondly, we see apostolic oblivion. Apostolic oblivion in verses 3 through 8. Now, we all make mistakes. So did the apostles. Shows again, they're ordinary men who received extraordinary power. Ordinary men who sometimes made extraordinary mistakes. And the extraordinary mistake you see in verses 3 through 8 is this. They forget which kingdom God is building. They're oblivious to God's purposes. Look with me at verse 3. He presented himself, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Again, it's the realm where God rules, the sphere of salvation. It's also mentioned, by the way, at the end of the book of Acts. Paul is in Rome at this point, the end of the known world in many ways. He's locked up. He's in prison. He's in chains. 
But the word of God is not bound. Acts 28 verses 30 and 31. This is how the book closes. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed as well. If you look at Luke 4, 43, it almost equates the kingdom with the gospel itself. But that is not the kingdom that the apostles are caring about, thinking about most at the moment. Moments before Jesus ascends to heaven, as you see in verses 9 through 11, he tells them, stay in Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then what do they say? Do they rejoice at all this good news? Are they so thrilled with all of it? No, they ask about their agenda, their most pressing concern, completely oblivious to God's concern, God's purpose. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're expecting the wrong kind of Messiah and the wrong kind of kingdom. They're oblivious to God's purpose. They want a restored kingdom. That's the word they use, restore, because they want a, a political, a territorial, an earthly kingdom. They also apparently want a national kingdom. They want it restored to Israel, they say. And they want this kingdom right now, at this time. They had watched Messiah suffer. But now they, they want what they had waited for all along. They want another David. They want a sword in his fist to drive out the Roman occupiers to reestablish the kingdom so they can be in charge once again. Is that what Jesus had in mind? Look at verses 7 and 8. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Rebuke number one from Jesus, the secret things belong to the Lord, to quote Deuteronomy 29, 29. When will this and that happen? When will all that happen? Quote one of our former members who's now with Jesus. He used to say, there's only one who knows and he ain't telling. Rebuke number two, Jesus seems to say, your battle is not against flesh and blood. That's not how this kingdom will be established. Instead, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses, my truth tellers about the power of the gospel, the power of my kingdom. Power is appealing to many of us, an idol to some of us. We like control. We don't like uncertainty. We like influence. We don't like shame and irreverence. But this is a different kind of power. James Boyce, the longtime pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, he said the Great Commission, what we see here, it leads us to two temptations. First one is idleness. Now, don't skip over that, but I wonder if the second one may be, may be more likely for us here this morning. The second one, doing the Lord's work in the world's way. Doing the Lord's work in the world's way. Using worldly power to impose our moral order, our vision upon society. Not that that vision is wrong, but is that your temptation? Here's more of voice. If we have bad laws in our society, 
we should certainly attempt to change them for better laws. I thought I might get an amen on that, but I forget you're Presbyterian. <laughs> I am too. <clears throat> he goes on to say, but changing laws does not in itself advance the kingdom. Pause there. In itself, don't miss those words. If you think better laws are never the answer to the problem, reread that. If you think better laws are always the answer to the problem, the only answer to the problem, reread that as well. Changing laws does not in itself advance the kingdom. Rather, it is the other way around where the kingdom advances good laws follow. Boyce wrote that 20 plus years ago. Does that mean he'd change his mind if he were alive today? Well, are his prescriptions any different than what you see in the rest of the book of Acts, the rest of Scripture? And did the apostles have it worse back then than we do now? Is our persecution today worse than it was for them back then? Do you trust what he says here? That where the kingdom advances, good laws follow. When more men and women love what God loves, good laws will follow. Oh, is that an uphill battle? Yes, my friends, it is. And we need the Spirit's power and help to do it slowly and surely, a long obedience in the same direction. But if you've, if you've been tempted to only pursue reformation through worldly power, don't be too hard on yourself. The apostles were oblivious to God's design as well. They wanted to restore their old kingdom. What did God want? He wanted them to witness about his gospel, his kingdom, the good news you find when God rules your heart, when he frees you from guilt, when he frees us from the expectations of others, amen, by reminding us that we're loved by a good and gracious king. Apostolic oblivion, it reminds us that there's hope for the clueless. Apostolic oblivion also reminds us that sometimes we are clueless, too narrow and selfish, only caring about our kingdom, making our name famous instead of God's. Sometimes we need God's grace to avoid oblivion an error. Eh, make that all the time. Every hour we need thee. Hope is coming in this passage, but first, after apostolic oblivion, we have to discuss a sober topic. We have to discuss apostolic apostasy. Apostolic apostasy in verses 12 through 20. They return to Jerusalem in verse 12, showing obedience, dependence on God, but there's only 11 apostles in the famous upper room. Who is missing? There's one Judas that is named, but there were two Judases among the disciples, the apostles. Judas Iscariot is not there. One who betrayed Jesus for money because that was one of his great loves. If you read in John chapter 12, Jesus is anointed with expensive perfume in preparation for his burial. Many of you know that story. Do you remember this part of the story? Judas protests. He says, why didn't we sell this? And Feed, it, feed the poor. Sounds so noble. Sounds like such a good idea. John 12, verse 6. John, the narrator, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. The other disciples, by the way, didn't catch on at first. Chapter 13, they... they 
they think he's a really swell guy, essentially. But verses 16 and 17 remind us, back in Acts 1, verses 16 and 17 reminds us, he became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was part of their number, and then he wasn't. And what happened next? Well, before we read that, consider this verse. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I think Judas suffered worldly grief. Regret for the consequences, not regret for the awfulness of his sin. And that led to more sin, verses 18 and 19 in Acts 1. They describe his death. If you look at Matthew 27, it makes it clear that this was first preceded by a decision to end his own life. So in other words, there's at least two hard things to discuss here. There's apostasy. There's also suicide. Let's talk about the apostasy first. Judas left the faith. He seemed to believe he had good friends Good character references. Judas had the best small group leader ever. But he didn't love Jesus. He gave in to temptation over and over until he made a horrible choice that he regretted. You see, Judas didn't wake up one day and leave the faith. That started years before when he stole from the treasury of the first church. As we think about that, I hope these words ring in our ears. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Don't let us do this, Lord. Lead us not into temptation, including the temptation to doubt, the temptation to run after anything besides the path that God has shown us. Prone to wander. There's another difficult part of this passage, of course. Judas ultimately takes his own life. Maybe we could have skipped that this morning, but this reality, suicide, has probably touched almost every individual, every family in the church. It's no secret that in recent years, District 20 schools have struggled with this problem. Recently, there were unconfirmed reports that a local college student took his own life. And then there's a cloud hanging over this topic. There's the Roman Catholic belief that suicide is a mortal sin, essentially unforgivable. Makes me think of a time 17 years ago, I was in seminary, an intern alongside our youth pastor, and the youth group was rocked when one of their beloved classmates at this point, a RUF intern serving the church, took his own life. It's the only time I remember senior pastor, Dr. Michael F. Ross, coming to talk to the youth group. You see, before Mike became a pastor, he had been a lapsed Roman Catholic. And that night, he clearly told these grieving teenagers what the Bible taught, that among other things, suicide is a sin. Suicide is not an unforgivable sin for those who've trusted in Christ. But it is sin. It is selfish. It does great harm to loved ones. And it may seem like the only choice, but it is not. God has something better. And as we look at this, we see that Judas... He's a story of a man with great privileges who ultimately loved himself more than his friends, who ultimately loved himself more than he loved Jesus. And he's a reminder to us that we are never beyond the need of God's grace, no matter our privileges and our position. And at the same time, we are also never beyond the reach of God's grace. Why do I say that? 
Because there's a note of God's grace buried in this text, so subtle we might almost miss it. Because who is it that's talking about Judas in verses 15 and following? Who's talking? It's another train wreck. It's another failure. It's Peter, the the disciple who is most like us, someone once said, who's impetuous, impatient, who speaks and acts before he thinks, who denied Jesus in his hour of trial, despite Jesus's warnings and his prophecy that this is what you're going to do, Peter. No, I won't. Peter did it anyway, wept bitter tears, but Peter had a godly grief that led him to repentance, that led to salvation without regret. Isn't Peter proof that the apostles are ordinary, ordinary faults, foibles, flaws that almost seem fatal? Isn't Peter proof that God gives extraordinary power to ordinary men. God didn't whitewash Peter and Judas out of the Bible and turn this into a hagiography, a puff piece. And why not? Because this is true. The dangers, the warnings, they're true. And the grace that saved a wretch like Peter is also true. The grace that can save and preserve and reclaim a wretch like you and me as God has done for centuries. So after apostolic apostasy, we see fourthly and finally apostolic succession. Apostolic succession in these final verses. God grows his kingdom. God spreads his gospel through flawed yet redeemed men, through Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses. True apostolic succession. It's not based on genes or family trees. It's not based on some kind of linear succession, some kind of mystical power that gets passed on. No true apostolic succession comes from the Holy Spirit's power. It comes from belief in the Savior. Verses 12 and 13, again, you see 11 apostles, not 12. So how will that problem get solved? How will they solve it? They wait. They obey. They return to Jerusalem in verse 12. They devote themselves to prayer, both in verse 14 and verse 24. You see that. And they seem to devote themselves to the scriptures as well. Did you notice how Peter quotes two different Psalms in verse 20 to explain this Judas situation and what to do next? And then he explains the criteria. They want someone who followed Jesus, someone who witnessed the resurrection, verse 22. In other words, they want someone who knows that they are great sinners and that their Savior had to die for them. They also want someone who knows that their great Savior rose again because death couldn't hold him or them. And so there are two candidates they have, verses 23 and 24. They put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Notice even the selection process is bathed in prayer. Notice that there's this one guy. He has three names. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. He seems very distinguished, right? And who do they choose? The guy who's notable, who has nicknames coming out his ears, or do they choose the other guy? An ordinary man 
who receives extraordinary power. That's not to say that there was anything wrong with Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. I'm sure he was a wonderful guy. He's among the followers of Jesus. But notice how Jesus, how the Holy Spirit, how God chooses the one who is somewhat lesser in the eyes of others. Notice also they cast lots, the equivalent of drawing straws or drawing a number, flipping a coin, something like that, but with prayer. <laughs> Don't miss that. They use this method. That doesn't negate the prayers. In fact, it shows even more dependence upon God to make this choice. And there's an Old Testament precedent for all of this. But interestingly, this is the last time you see this practice in the Bible. Some think that is because the Holy Spirit is poured out one chapter later upon the church. But regardless, a new leader is chosen. The 12 apostles, they're complete once again. Another Holy Spirit-empowered witness has joined the church, the leadership of the church in this case. You might say all they need now is the promise of the Father, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it makes you wonder if our church is any different. Oh, sure, we have more resources, more money than they did, more technology, more history to learn from. But do we need the Holy Spirit any less? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm still a Presbyterian. I still believe in an educated ministry that requires ministerial candidates to go through Presbyterian boot camp to get ordained. That phrase is not my own, but I like it. I believe in sound doctrine that accords with godliness. I believe that you can be prideful because you're puffed up with knowledge. You can also be prideful because of a lack of knowledge that scoffs at learning. I believe in a faith once for all delivered to the saints. But I also believe we should be hungry for the things of God. That we shouldn't just do them, but that we should devote ourselves to them. Be devoted to prayer, to a holy pleading with God. You see, Acts is the story of all that Jesus continued to do and teach through the Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses and truth-tellers. And when I look at Acts, when I go through these stories, I see a little more passion than polish. I see a little less professionalism in its leaders and a little more pleading with God and men, not to the exclusion of doctrine and the truth of God's word, let's keep in mind. But that pleading, that passion, isn't it one of the things that God wants us to continue to learn? Isn't it at least one sign of a Holy Spirit-filled people? This reminds me of the preface to John Piper's second edition of his great book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. It's a book for pastors, but I trust that any Christian can benefit from what he says in his 33rd and final year at Bethlehem Baptist Church. He says, when I look back, my regret is not that I wasn't more professional, but that I wasn't more prayerful, more passionate for souls, more consistent in personal witness, more emotionally engaged with my children, more tender with my wife, more spontaneously affirming of the good in others. These are my regrets in a page later, he says, this is still his prayer for himself and his fellow pastors. Banish professionalism from our midst, O God, and in its place put passionate prayer, 
poverty of spirit, hunger for God, rigorous study of holy things, white-hot devotion to Jesus Christ, utter indifference to all material gain, and unremitting labor to rescue the perishing. Perfect the saints and glorify our sovereign Lord. In Jesus' great and powerful name, amen. We're ordinary men and women, just like the apostles. And I pray that God does extraordinary things through us. Our world certainly needs it. But first, I pray that God does extraordinary things in us, that he runs his church, that he builds his church by building up ordinary men and women like you and me by the power of his gospel. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us love your truth and help us love your truth. Help us love you. Help us love your people. Help us love those who are created in your image who are not yet part of your people, not yet part of your fold, but we pray that they might be. Father, help us love the things of God. Give us a passion for you, your word, and to see your glory spread throughout all the earth, your fame, your name. We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen.